Well, my name is Jeremy Olam. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Redemption Gilbert. I have the honor of being able to uh, work alongside one of my best friends, Brian, who is just up here. We uh, help oversee adult discipleship here at the church, primarily in the area of uh, community ministry, small group ministry here at the church. Uh, I'm really glad that you decided to join us here this morning. It really says something about you that on the first day of the year, literally January 1st, here you are in church I don't know what it says. I'm still trying to figure it out, but it says something, so uh, take it for what it's worth. Um, I know that I know many of you, and you maybe know me, but for those of you who don't know me or don't know me well, I thought I'd share a few uh, facts about me. I am a follower of Jesus. I am married uh, to Rachel, my wife. I am a father to Asher and Beck, and I am a miserable, abject failure. Let's just get that out of the way. All right, um, let's be straight with each other here, all right? Uh, It is January 1st, literally the first day of the year. Uh, Three quarters of the country was up past midnight last night. It's raining. They let me preach. Um, If there was ever a day that was teed up to have that expected, cheesy New Year's resolution sermon, this is it. Uh, In fact, I set out to do that, and then I quit because I, I couldn't bring myself to do it. And, and here's why. I mean, seriously, what am I going to give you? The top 10 ways to completely fall on your face in 2017. Five keys to flopping in the first two weeks of your New Year's resolution. These are the only things uh, that I'm actually qualified to teach you on the subject. I promise myself so many times at the beginning of the year that this is the year that I'm going to eat better and work out, that it's now become less a hopeful expectation, but an inside joke that I tell myself so I can giggle about it. Yeah, sure you are. One of my friends posted a meme on Facebook this last week, and it said, last year's New Year's resolution, drink water, eat healthy. Actual results, drank margaritas, ate tacos. Uh, I feel like that's somewhere in the neighborhood of what my usual... uh, resolution success looks like. Long-term goal setting has never been a strong suit of mine. The last major goal that I accomplished uh, was convincing my wife to marry me. That was almost 17 years ago. That should give you an idea of the kind of success I have going. Yeah, yeah. You guys are excited about that. All right. Um, So I've started uh, trying to set short-term goals for myself, ones that I feel like I can accomplish. For instance, the day after Christmas, I set a goal for myself to be able to eat an entire bag of gummy bears in one sitting, and I nailed it. Uh, So proud of that. I'm actually still glowing a little bit. The idea that somehow this day is magical, that if you suddenly start something today, something that has been virtually impossible every other day of your life, that if you uh, start it today, you're going to pull it off. That's silly, and we all know it. I'm going to give you your uh, exciting statement to start 2017. It ain't going to happen, so don't try, okay? There you go. You can say, this is what my pastor told me today. Um, So what I decided that I was going to do for today was to Use today in a way that at least acknowledges the fresh start that it represents in a way that, you know, can wrap its arms a little bit around the significance of a uh, standing at the beginning of a new year. But I do not want it to be a to-do list. What I'm going to give you today instead is a to-be list. 
Uh, For every one of you that's here this morning because your spiritual life is off track or maybe it's never been on any sort of track at all, the last thing that I want to do is give you a list to whip your spiritual life into shape this year. It didn't work for your waistline and it's not going to work for your soul, so let's not do that. Instead, I think the chance that we have here this morning in in this place is not to define ourselves by what we're going to do this year, but to define 2017 by who we are. I live in a great little neighborhood in southeast Gilbert. My wife and I built our first home there together uh, about 14 years ago. Uh, It was a starter home that has apparently become our forever home because we haven't left. Uh, It's small, it's comfortable, it's great. Um, there's, there's really only one thing that we don't love uh, about it, and it's the dog that lives next door. Uh, we, we love spending time out in our yard. Uh, one of the things that we loved about our house when we bought it is the, the backyard is bigger than most Arizona backyards, so we love that. We spend time out there. We have two little boys in a small house, so the sanity that the backyard offers us is key to surviving in this house. Um, and over the wall lives the largest dog you have ever seen. I mean, we ha- we've been hearing the dog for months and months, but I've never seen it outside of the walls of the backyard. It's just back there. So a, c- a cu- couple of weeks ago, I decided I was going to climb up on a chair to peek over the concrete wall to get a look at this dog. Um, I almost fell off the chair when this maneless horse uh, in the backyard got a look at me and it came my way. It appears to be a Dalmatian-Great Dane mix. I just want to let that sit on you for a second so you can really imagine it, right? Uh, It is huge. When it it saw me, it came at the wall and it jumped up and its paws were over the top of the brick wall. That's how big it was. Um, He has a bark that sounds something like a cross between that moment when Chewbacca saw Han die and and a a high-caliber semi-automatic rifle, right? It's so loud, it is so aggressive, and this dog is really proud of his bark. And I got to be honest, if I was a dog, I'd be pretty proud of that bark too. It's something to behold. Uh, And when he's in the backyard, he just lets fly. The other day, we're sitting out in the backyard, we're enjoying a beautiful, sunny December day in Arizona. My wife and I are sitting in lounge chairs. The boys are entertaining themselves with who knows what. They're not bothering me. That's all I care about. Uh, There's hummingbirds buzzing around over our heads. I mean, it is idyllic and wonderful. And then, here comes the dog. And he, I don't know, sees the sun or a cloud or whatever it is that gets him started. And there he goes. He starts barking. He lets fly. And and Rachel looks at me and she sighs and she says, what in the world is he barking at? I said, I don't know. He's a dog. It's what he does. It's what he was built to do. If you saw him, you would understand. And, And that's what I'm hoping that we can do here this morning together. I'm hoping that I can remind you of what you were built to do. I guarantee that dog is going to be barking this afternoon when he comes out of his house. I can also guarantee it's not because he got up this morning and over a cup of coffee coffee, contemplated the ways he has let himself down over the past year. He's not writing a list of ways to be a better dog in 2007. He's going to bark because it's in his monstrous dog bones. It's deep down in his 
Frankenstein canine DNA. It's who he is. It's what he was built to do. And if I could give you a verse to sit on this year, if I could give you a verse that we could own together as a people, together as the church, it would be this one. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. The calling that God has placed on the church is not something that primarily comes out of a list of commands to follow. He didn't first give us jobs to do or things to accomplish. He made us into something new. He recreated us into new creatures. He has molded us and he is molding us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus into a remade humanity. And if we want to live into this calling this year, the one that we've received, we have to know what he has called us to be. We could do a six-month series on all of the things that God has recreated us to be, uh, but I have just this morning. So this morning, I'm going to remind you of just 2,017 things that God has made us to be. Just kidding, it's going to be five. We can handle that, five. All right, let's pray and ask that God be with us this morning as we continue. Heavenly Father, you are the giver of all good gifts, and you've given us another year. God, we, we thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for this group of people, this community that I am a part of. God, we uh, thank you for the way you are shaping us and changing us into something new. God, we pray this morning the Holy Spirit would meet us here and transform our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Number one of five, we are a blessing. In the very beginning of the story of the Bible, God was creating everything that there is to create. And there in the center of his creation, he creates a special hand-planted garden. And then he places the pinnacle of his creation, man, in that garden. It's this beautiful, artisanal garden. Uh, the first instructions that are given to Adam there, according to Genesis 2, are to work the garden and to care for it. What's, what's interesting to me is that God's first instruction to Adam, the first thing that we hear him instruct mankind to do, isn't to worship him. Later in the story, when we get to Exodus and Moses and the Ten Commandments, uh, the first laws have to do with mankind's worship of God. But here, there's no instruction for worship. Why is that piece missing? I think because it tells us that when people are in a right relationship with God, when sin is not clouding their vision or their heart, that worship is simply what that kind of people do. Why would he have to instruct Adam to breathe? It came naturally to him. Likewise, he wouldn't have to instruct him in this. God was his maker, his caretaker, his instruction giver, his life bringer. There was nothing but living in the light of who he was and worship poured out of him naturally. There was no law to worship. Instead, because of his perfect relationship with God, everything he did was worship. So instead, God gives him direction that comes out of that. And the direction, I think, is a clue for us about what God's intention with humanity was. To be in a relationship with him, that seems obvious. But I think we could sum it up this way. God sent man to bless the world. In the garden, in, in his care, Adam was working to be a blessing. And when Eve was then created, she sent to bless Adam. And Adam is then united with Eve and they become one person in spirit and they're demonstrating what Jesus later teaches on the Sermon on the Mount 
to love your neighbor as yourself. In the first marriage, there in the garden, Adam and Eve are instructed that they cease to be two people and instead become one person, two people who treat themselves perfectly. It's a perfect love, a perfect service. It is a life of blessing for the other. Now, the rebellion that comes just in the next chapter, chapter 3, is not just a rebellion against God, although it is a rebellion against him. It's also a rebellion against the calling that God has placed on humanity. It's a rebellion against the idea that the world is made to work when God's people serve and bless the people around them. Instead, part of the lie that is believed there in the garden rejects God and his calling on their life. They believe instead that it would be better if we changed the equation. If we could get rid of this and say instead God sent man to bless himself. A big part of the lie said that all God made and all God has done is so that you can be in charge. That you can first and foremost care about yourself. That, that life is about self-fulfillment, uh, that the health that you have is yours, that your personal power, comfort, um, and agenda is the primary issue in the world. In the chapters that follow in the book of Genesis, we begin to see the world unravel uh, when that calling of mankind is exchanged for something else, when the truth of God is exchanged for a lie, and we see murder and hatred and pride. There's no end to the evil that's invented in the wake of the exchange. Now, you don't have to look very far in the modern world, the world we live in, to see that it's the same lie that's believed now. When the world believes that the ultimate goal of life is to be personally satisfied, and I have the ability to define the terms of my satisfaction, even if it's at great cost to others, then we shouldn't be surprised when we have a broken world filled with broken people. The church has taken, long taken the story of what's broken in the world and uh, then ironically we've taken God's solution for this broken place and these broken people and we've remixed it. We've taken the parts we like, uh, we've emphasized the parts that sound good to our ears and I think in doing so we might have lost what our calling actually is. The formula that the church has latched onto, the one that uh, we hear often sounds something like this, God sent Jesus to save me. And amen to that. Humanity was and is lost in its own downward spiral of sin and rebellion against God. And in the midst of that, he sent his son Jesus to live a righteous and perfect life, to die on the cross, to rise to new life, to save me, to save you by faith. It's a beautiful and true telling of God's love for us, but I would argue it's an incomplete one. God sent Jesus to save me is true, but it's not the end of the story. God sent Jesus to restore you, to restore your freedom from the chains of sin, to restore your dead heart to life, to restore your relationship with him, to restore your worship of him. And for what purpose? His mission of restoration is to restore us to our original calling, which was that God sent man to bless the world. God has saved us and restored all of those things in us, not so that we can then pick up that original distortion, that lie, and live into a different calling. No, he's trying to call us back to our original intent 
the original intent for humanity in the garden to be a people who are a blessing to the world. One of, one of my uh, favorite hobbies, the thing I love to do, is to backpack. I, I love to put all my stuff in a backpack and wander out into the woods to get away from the crowds and to get away from noise and people, frankly, uh, and to stare into a, a fire and not speak for long periods of time for multiple nights. Uh, Now, backpacking in Arizona has a few challenges that are different than other places. I grew up in rural North Dakota. What I have to worry about here is very different than what I worried about there. Uh, One of our primary issues here is having enough water, right? You you really have two options when you're going uh, backpacking in Arizona. Uh, The first one is that you can carry every ounce of water with you on your back out into the woods. Now, water weighs somewhere in the neighborhood of eight and a half pounds per gallon, Uh, And so you can imagine that that can get very heavy very quickly, uh, and it can restrict the distance that you go. The second option is that you can choose backpacking routes that follow or wander by existing water sources out in the wilderness, and then you can gather water as you go. And even even in my adventures, I tend to be a lazy man, uh, so you can imagine which one of these two I opt for. I, I go where the water is, and I need to bring a water filter with me because I, I get my water from the sources that are available. And what I'm looking for when I'm out there is not just places where water has gathered. Uh, there are oftentimes those, but I'm looking for a place where water is flowing. It doesn't have to be a lot, but a healthy pool of water that has water flowing in and out. Because without the outflow, the water quickly becomes rancid and stagnant. Um, Can you drink it? Sure. Uh, Do you want to? No, it smells bad and it's icky. That's what I tell my sons about it. Um, Humanity has long reveled in God's great blessings for us, right? The, the blessings that pour into all of our lives, we've accepted those blessings with open arms. Every sun ray, every drop of rain, every breath, every penny, every love, every laugh, every morsel of food, all gifts from him. And for the Christian, you can add on top to that, our salvation, our acceptance, our lives, our hope, all gifts from the Father. And yet, If we are a people who are not living a life worthy of our calling, we're like a pool of water with no outflow. We gather and benefit from the gifts of God, and then we greedily hold on to them, and we build bigger storehouses for them. And when they get full, we tear them down and build even bigger storehouses for them. And in doing so, a people like that, their hearts grow rancid and cold. And if we begin to live as if God has given us blessing just so we can satisfy ourselves, we begin to choke out what God is trying to do through his church in the world. When we begin to believe and live as if Christ died just to rescue you from the punishment from, of hell, uh, we begin to undermine the very calling that God has placed on our lives. Church, our calling in the world is to pursue active good in the world. We're called to be a generous and a thoughtful people. We cannot become trapped in just being people who condemn what is broken and distorted in the world. That's easy. We have to cheer for what is good. We have to pursue blessing in the places that we work We have to view our work and our lives not just as a burden to carry, but a way that God is using to bless the world that he loves. We can't just complain how in our modern 
American society, people are so individualistic. We can't just complain that in modern American suburbia, no one knows their neighbors. We have to be the people in our front yards. We have to be the people who bring cookies to our neighbors. We have to be the ones caring for the elderly widow or widower on your street, bringing them meals and relationship and care. We should be the ones organizing the block party on your street to get to know your neighbors. When you move out of your neighborhood, your neighbors should feel and lament the loss of your presence. Your Halloween candy should be the best. Your Christmas lights should be the brightest. We can't be a people who just speak out about the horrors of something like abortion. We actually have to love the mothers who are in jeopardy in the world. We have to be willing to support kids in the foster care system and adopt children who are unwanted. We have to give and support charities that help and assist those mothers in need. It's one of the reasons that I'm so proud of this church and our activity in foster care and adoption because it shows that we are here to be a blessing in the hurting places. Our, one of our callings is to bless the world with our presence in 2017 and to live lives worthy of our calling. Number two, we are priests. In Luke chapter 10, uh, Jesus tells one of his best-known parables. It's the parable known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, Jesus tells the story of a man who is traveling um, down a road through a notoriously dangerous area, and there he's jumped by bad guys. He's beaten within an inch of his life. They rob him and leave him for dead on the side of the road. And upon this violent scene come a couple characters. These would have been characters that were very well known to people of ancient Judea, uh, the two men are a priest and a Levite, and it says that they come across the man in his dark moment of distress uh, with his life on the line, and they both give him the exact same response. They look away from him, they avert their eyes, they cross on the other side of the road, and they go about their business. Now, who are these guys? Um, the Levites were a, an entire family clan of Israelites who were descendants of Moses' brother, Aaron. Uh, they were assigned the role of care and upkeep and fulfilling religious duties uh, required in the temple. And if you were a male born into this tribe, then your destiny was set in stone. Uh, from the ages of 25 to the age of 50, roughly, your job was set for you. You were going to be a temple worker. You'd spend the bulk of your productive years inside the walls of the Temple Mount. Uh, your pay was going to be provided by the giving of the average Israelites uh, at the temple. And of this group of men, a small percentage of them uh, became priests. They were chosen to fulfill a higher calling. They would be the priests in the temple. They were responsible directly for um, being the in-between, the intercession between God and man. They were the ones that would stand between a holy God and a people who were unrighteous and in deep need. So when Jesus mentions these two men in the story, these were people that would have been viewed instantly as being the people closest to God. They were set apart for this work. They have direct access to the Father on behalf of the people. And in this story, they see a man in need and they move away from him. It's uncomfortable. It's possibly a dangerous situation. And they avoid it. Now, it's easy to view them as being complete failures in their roles, but I don't think it's entirely fair to view them that way. I would argue that they've just forgotten the full picture of their calling. They had chosen a, a selective focus on purity 
and official temple work, and it had drawn them away from the, the dark and hurting when it was presented to them. These men were more concerned with keeping themselves separate from the dirty realities of the world than engaging. Was keeping ritually pure and clean part of their responsibility? Of course it was. Yes, it was. But in this moment, this one piece of their calling, this one piece of their responsibility, which had been designed to make them useful for the work of God in the world, instead was used as an excuse to remove themselves from the work of God in the world. This cleanliness and otherness became a blinding focus of their calling as they moved through life, and as a result, they both overlook a man in desperate need of help. In the wake of Jesus' resurrection, something incredible happens. In the book of Hebrews, we are told that Christ becomes our high priest. He becomes our go-between, the one who stands between a holy God and an unrighteous people in need of help. But something else comes with that because in 1 Peter, in chapter 2, we are told that we, the church, believers, take on a role as well. Peter writes that we become a royal priesthood. That those of us who have been reborn into new life because of calling on the name of Jesus have been given a new role, a new calling, a job just as unavoidable as that of the Levites. We are now priests in service to the high priest, the king we call Jesus. Instead of serving out our priesthood within the confines of a temple building, Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he tells them, don't you know that you yourself are God's temple and that God's spirit lives within you? In this new age, ushered in by the resurrection of Jesus, all who would call on him are filled with the Holy Spirit and then we are commissioned as roving priests in the world. We, we are called upon to act as go-betweens. We wander in the world, going about our daily lives, but with one eye always out for the place where hurting lives. We're called to be prepared to administer grace and love from God for those who are desperate and in need of it. This year, church, I want to encourage you to push back against the temptation to focus so much on being separate from the hurt and the dark in the world that you miss the places where grace and redemption is desperately needed. We should be the place where people around us look to first when they're in their darkest time. We should walk around with shoulders wet with the tears that we have gained by comforting the hurting. I want to encourage you to keep your eyes awake for the places of hurting. The world runs from the hurting and the downtrodden. The world crosses to the other side of the road in the face of damaged people. But you've been called into the hurting places to bring the hope and love of Jesus. Number three, we're magnets. In January 2010, it's not that long ago, so you probably remember this happening. A massive earthquake uh, struck the impoverished nation of Haiti. Uh, the quake measured 7.0 on the Richter scale. In the two weeks that followed that earthquake, uh, 54 aftershocks that measured 4.5 or higher on the Richter scale hit them. And it didn't hit out in the ocean and then affect them. It actually uh, was epicentered just 16 miles from the center of their capital. I did some reading about it this week to remind myself, and it, it's incredible what kind of destructive aftermath this series of earthquakes left. Uh, 250,000 homes were destroyed. Over 30,000 commercial buildings were reduced to rubble. And in the final estimate, and it can only be an estimate because the number is so large, 
upwards of 160,000 people died in that earthquake. And beyond that, over 3 million people were affected by the complete destruction of nearly all infrastructure, road systems, support services, food and water was nearly impossible to come by. I remember in the wake of the disaster, uh, seeing the world respond with generosity and giving um, in, in, in attempts to alleviate the suffering, it encouraged me. And then I also remember seeing, because of the complete devastation, how difficult it was to get any of that help to the people who actually needed it. In that desperate environment that quickly developed, uh, the vacuum that the earthquake created there created a people so insanely hungry and so insanely thirsty that they began to attack the few relief trucks that would actually be able to get to them. I, I remember seeing pictures of people standing hundreds deep around a single relief truck, each trying to get just a, just a small bit of help and hope. The church, the, the community of believing Jesus followers that make up the people of the church are called to serve as a magnet to the world, much like the relief trucks that were reaching hungry people there in Haiti. The Gospel of John in chapter 13 uh, records a story that's probably very familiar to you of Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. It's an incredible demonstration of uh, Jesus' love and humble service for his people. And in the wake of this moment, Jesus tells his disciples this. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so must you love one another. By this, Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Humankind has been handcrafted to crave, desire, and seek love and acceptance. It's the place deep within each of us that is thirsty for something to fill that need in us. It was the thing that was filled all of the time in the garden with Adam and Eve when they were with God. And ever since the rebellion, it's the place inside that's been empty and screaming to be filled. Now humanity, made in the image of a creative God, has never ceased to come up with creative ways to try to fill that gaping hole. They've tried food, money, power, comfort, sex, drugs, rock and roll, and yet nothing seems to work. But for those of us who have been given the incredible grace of Jesus, we understand that there's nothing that can totally fill that space in us but a reunited relationship with God. The secure, rock-steady, unshakable acceptance of our Father who's in heaven. And there are amazing things that come out of that kind of a secure heart who's found its rest and its thirst removed at the deepest level. We no longer have to use people to meet our needs, that deep thirst inside us. Instead, we can truly love them as Christ has instructed us. We no longer have to hoard the blessings God gives us in hopes that somehow it will make me feel right inside. Instead, I can be generous and give. And within the church, we should see a place where people have been made right and secure, and it should be overflowing out of our lives as we overwhelm each other with love and care and service. And in 2017, if we really love lean into our love for one another, the church will start to be the kind of magnetic place that looks like a food relief truck in a starving nation. People would pour out to know this place, these people who are confident and able to serve and love each other with reckless hearts. The world would know that we are his disciples 
because of the way we love each other. But I will tell you that the only way that you're going to be able to be that kind of magnet in the world uh, is if you're in meaningful relationships with other Christians. If you don't have a Christian community who loves you and knows you and you know them and love them, then in 2017, it's your job to start acting like a magnet. And there's a couple easy ways that you can do that. Number one, serve here at the church. Love tangibly the other people in the body. The second one is to be in a redemption community with other Christians who can help you to do this. If you are not in those places, you can go out to the info desk right after service and they will help you get connected to both of them so that you can live into your calling this year. Number four, we are proclaimers. I was going to tell you a story about something that happened to me uh, over the Christmas holiday but, holiday, but I didn't think you would believe me, so I decided not to tell you. All right, fine, you convinced me, I'll do it. Uh, okay, so I went out to the mall shopping like a day or two before Christmas, like, you know, every man in a panic is, does, and uh, as I'm walking up out of the parking lot, I see a guy standing up there, and he is talking to people and asking them questions up ahead of me as, as I approach. Uh, and I figure, oh, he's probably asking for Christmas donations, for charity or something. So being the good Christian man that I am, I, I avoided his gaze and I tried to swerve around him. Um, but he, he locked me in his tractor beam. Um, and he says something that, of course, gets my attention. He says, sir, I have something incredible to tell you that will change your life. And I make the mistake of looking up and making eye contact with the guy, and then he's got me. I'm too Midwestern nice to just ignore him and walk past. So I say, oh, yeah, what's that? He says, uh, I have a genie in my phone, and I want to show it to you. Okay, so, so at this point, now I'm nervous. Like, oh, my gosh, what have I gotten myself into? I start scanning him. Does he have a knife on him or anything? And I say, uh, okay, how, how'd the genie get there? He says, I asked him. Boom, he's in the phone. He holds up his phone just like this. Hold on, I'll show you. Holds up his phone. It's right in there. I said, okay, that looks just like my phone. Uh, How do you know he's actually in there? He says, well, uh, I know it looks similar to yours, but the genie's in there. I talk to him all the time. Uh, And at this point, I kind of give him that like, oh, sarcastic, impressed eyebrow thing that you do with people. Uh, And he says, not only do I talk to him, He talks back to me, and he can tell me the future. (laughs) I was like, okay, how's that work? He goes like this. Uh, What's the weather going to be like tomorrow? Tomorrow's forecast for Gilbert is 59 degrees and mostly cloudy. And he gives me one of these, like I'm going to be impressed. And now I'm nervous about what kind of rabbit hole I got myself down into, and I'm looking around for candid camera or whatever YouTube version of that exists these days, and I back away from the guy, and I said, that sounds great, buddy. I'm glad you found something to make you happy, but my phone does the same stuff, and I don't need a genie, and I walk away. All right, confession time. That didn't actually happen, but it was a good story, right? You guys are with me? Yeah, that didn't actually happen, but here's the thing. I feel like sometimes the world must be looking at Christians kind of the same way, Right? We, listen, listen to this. We claim that the God of the universe, the one who created everything, became a baby human, grew up and was murdered as an adult only to come back to life, fly into the sky, and now lives in my heart. Just let that sit on you for a second, okay? This is what we are telling the world. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. I worry that the world looks at Christians and they hear our confession and they think, 
okay, buddy, whatever makes you happy, but my life looks just like your life, and if you think there's a genie that lives in your phone, that's cool, right? They say, they care about the same things I care about. They live the same way I live. They vote the same way I vote. They spend their money the same way I spend my money. They raise their kids the same way I raise my kids. They're petty and vengeful just like I am. I see their leaders who have moral failings all the time and they're on TV and I'm not like that guy. What are they doing? Here's the deal. A Bible-believing follower of Jesus makes some pretty extreme claims. We have to admit that. We say that we are completely new creatures, a new kind of humanity. We say that we're indwelt by the power of God himself. We better have some proof to back it up. The Gospel of Matthew records a a moment when John the Baptist is in prison. Things are not looking good for him in the near future. Uh, This is John who's been paving the way for the Messiah. He's been going around preaching that everyone must repent of their sins and be baptized because the Messiah is here, the kingdom of God is coming with him. This is the guy who said Jesus is that man. And now he's in prison and he starts to wonder if he was just mistaken about the whole thing. He'd been making some incredible claims And he was looking for incredible evidence. And instead, he finds himself in prison, hoping that he doesn't end up with his head on a platter. Now, John sends his disciples to talk to Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 11, we see this exchange. Uh, The disciples come up to Jesus. It says, when John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Jesus is validating his claims to be the Messiah that was sent of God. He references both his works and his deeds. There's an old saying that I think sums up his response well, and it goes like this, talk is cheap. He says, you want to know if I'm the claimed Messiah? Look what I'm up to. I'm doing God stuff. I'm giving the blind sight. I'm making the lame walk. I'm curing disease. I'm restoring hearing of the deaf. I'm restoring life to the dead. And then I'm helping make sense of what they see by my words. My concern is that the church in modern America takes one of two roads, both of which are problematic. The first one is that they say, my faith is private. I don't speak about my convictions. Uh, Because that would be awkward, and after all, everyone is entitled to believe what they believe, and I don't want to make people uncomfortable, and I might be rejected anyway, so I'm not going to do that. Now, the second road is one that rejects the first, but but I think it's another mistaken path. This one says, I will speak about Jesus when the opportunity arises, but this is going to be a conversation about philosophy more than about a lived conviction, and we end up sounding like a guy who has a genie in his phone more than Jesus. One of my favorite 20th century theologians, Leslie Newbegin, said this about the topic. The purely verbal preaching of the story of Jesus crucified and risen would lose its power if those who heard it could not trace it back to some community in which that message was being validated in a common way of life which is recognizable as embodying at least a foretaste of the blessedness for which all men long and the gospel promises you can say whatever you want about jesus 
But if the people who hear it can't look at your life and the life of the community that you're a part of and see that the claims you are making are validated by, by the kind of extreme blessing and giving, the ability to walk into dark and hurting places, the ability to love each other at great cost to yourself, then they will discount your claims about who Jesus is. And you'll sound like a nutty guy at the mall that I just made up. This year, live into your calling to be a blessing, to be priests, to be magnetic in our love for each other, and it will allow our calling as proclaimers to have real weight and power in 2017. Lastly, as we wrap up, we are sent. We have to remember that we as the church are a people that are on mission from the king of all things because he has commissioned our very lives for the work of the kingdom. And because that is true, we can move with boldness and confidence, confidence in the world. The people of God have always been a sent people. This is not new. Adam was sent to care for the garden. Abraham was sent to bless the world. Joseph was save, sent to save the world from famine. Moses was sent to rescue God's people from slavery. Jesus was sent to save the whole world. The apostles were sent to make disciples. Paul was sent to bring good news to the Gentiles. And church, in 2017, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. We are not a people who have been saved from our sin to live a comfortable, selfish, inward-focused life. We're a people sent out into the world to be active blessing and goodness to our neighbors to our workplaces, to our schools and our city. We're a people sent as priests looking for the dark and the hurting and the dark places of the human experience. We're a magnet for the people of the world looking for love, care, and acceptance and looking into the body of Christ and seeing it on display in a way that seems supernatural. We're a people sent into the world with a message of the gospel. The good news that God has cared deeply for his people, he's waded into this mess to rescue us, that the good news that he has lived for us, died for us, and raised to new life for us. The good news that we can share in that life, death, and resurrection, and new life by faith alone, and be made new and right before our maker. This year, we remember that we are on a sent people on mission from the king, and nothing will stand against his church or his mission. This year, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this church. We thank you for these people. We thank you for what you've done in our lives. God, we pray that this year the Holy Spirit will be with us and empower us and remind us of who we are. God, we are yours because you loved us. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.